Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Unfiltered. I'm S.E. Cup. Here's tonight's headline, feeling the burn or heartburn. I couldn't help but laugh this week as countless pundits, headline writers, and Bernie Sanders rivals in the 2020 election tried to spin his win in New Hampshire as somehow not good news for Bernie. He didn't win by enough, they said. He didn't bring in new voters, they said. New Hampshire doesn't really count, they said. Look, whatever makes you feel better. But after a strong finish behind Pete Buttigieg in Iowa, Sanders is the front runner, whether Democrats like it or not. And many, it turns out, really do not. New Hampshire Senator Jean Shaheen was quick to point out Bernie didn't win big in her state. Moderate House Democrats in particular are sounding alarms on a Sanders nomination. Congressman Scott Peters from a purple California district told The Hill... Sanders is about the worst candidate we can put up. He not only won't likely win the presidency, he puts the House majority at risk. Congressman Dean Phillips, who flipped a Republican district in Minnesota in 2018, said, Well, I respect Bernie Sanders as a senator. As a candidate, his candidacy is very challenging for people who come from districts like mine. Max Rose, a congressman from Staten Island, said, I'm not a socialist. I'm thinking about printing T-shirts saying as much. I think socialist economic policies fail inevitably. And just listen to the emotional pleas over on MSNBC for Democratic voters to beware of Sanders. I have my own views of the word socialist. I have an attitude about them. I remember the Cold War. I have an attitude towards Castro. I believe if Castro and the, and, the, and the Reds had won the Cold War, there would have been executions in Central Park, and I might have been one of the ones getting executed. And certain other people would be there cheering. The only thing between the United States and the abyss is the Democratic Party. That's it. And if we go the way of the British Labor Party, if we nominate Jeremy Coleman, it's going to be the end of days. The end of days, you guys. This all feels very familiar to me. In fact, this was me four years ago, melting down at the thought of Trump becoming the Republican nominee. Most Republicans find what Donald Trump said to be repulsive. It's repulsive morally. It's repulsive if you cherish the Constitution. It's repulsive if you're a good conservative. It's repulsive if you like freedom of religion. It's repulsive on so many, so many levels. You could almost hear me lighting my hair on fire. Of course, it turns out I was worried for nothing. Everything is great. This is all fine. Trump is the least popular president to run for re-election history in the history of polls. He's added more than $3 trillion to the debt, started a trade war, failed on major campaign promises, got himself impeached for goading a foreign country to interfere in our election, and gave Democrats back the House good job, GOP. Look, there are real parallels between the never Trump 
concerns and the growing concerns of Never Sanders Democrats. He's too extreme. He'll hurt the party down ballot. He won't be able to get his agenda passed. We said those same things of Trump, and we were mostly right. These are good warnings to heed. Sanders is an extreme candidate. He will transform the Democratic Party in ways that likely very few will support. He will not be able to get a lot of his agenda passed. But when it comes to Sanders' electability, well, a word of caution there, too. Frankly, I don't know how how Trump surrogates like Lou can can sleep at night peddling this unconstitutional, unconservative and un-American garbage for a guy who, let's face it, will never be president. (laughs) I mean, we were obviously we were wrong about Trump's electability. Uh, True. He didn't win the popular vote. True, he didn't even win a majority of Republican voters in the primary. And true, Hillary Clinton was a very flawed candidate. But Trump won. Here's the deal. Bernie is electable in ways that Trump was electable in 2016. Bernie, like Trump, is counting not on the support of a majority of Democrats to win the nomination, but on just enough of his very loyal base to carry him over the line. Just like Trump, he's relying on a big field and a divided field to give him the most votes. But he's also electable because Trump is a very flawed candidate. In virtually every national poll, Trump ties or loses to every leading Democratic candidate. And if you zoom in on six battleground states, Trump was trailing Biden, Sanders, and Warren or barely ahead. A trend that's continued in a couple of swing state polls since that also include Pete Buttigieg. That's good news for all the top Democratic contenders, but particularly Bernie. So to Democrats, I say learn from us never Trumpers. We were we were wrong about the kind of candidate Trump was, but we were right about the kind of president he would become. Here to discuss is former Obama senior advisor, CNN, senior political commentator, David Axelrod. Um, Ax, look, Bernie and Trump are obviously very different. I stipulate this. Bernie doesn't bring all of the personal ethical scandals that Trump did uh, that we know of anyway. But Bernie seems, for one thing, equally disinterested in earning the affection of the Democratic Party, as Trump did, right, of the GOP. You remember Reince Priebus, like, flying down, you know, flying up to New York to beg Trump to sign this loyalty pledge. Um, Is that going to pose a problem for the DNC? Uh... Yeah, look, let me just, first of all, let me say I was sitting right next to you when you said many of those things. I probably was I nodding know. my head. I know. So uh, <laughs> I, uh, we, we were all there together. Uh, and you're, you're right in much of what you say here. Uh, and the fact is that Bernie Sanders uh, is an anti-establishment candidate in much the way Donald Trump was uh, when he talks about the economy being rigged against everyday people. That's a very familiar theme. They have different causes. He's not pointing at immigrants and he's not pointing at uh, some of the 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 the, uh, uh, targets that Trump pointed to. He's pointing more at Wall Street uh, and our economic system. But uh, but he does speak to, uh, you know, a sense of alienation that a lot of Americans uh, feel. And he speaks with authenticity, which was no, yeah. nobody ever said whether you like Trump or not. Nobody said, gee, I wish he'd speak his mind. OK, <laughs> right. He, he's authentic. And, and Bernie Sanders is authentic. And he's a much better candidate on TV than people give him credit for. Yeah. I mean, he's very, very good. I mean, the, all those things are true. Um, you know, the one place where I disagree with you is mm-hmm. that 
It's a little bit different because I don't think I think these people who said he underperformed in the first two states are right. I mean, he won New Hampshire by 60 percent. He barely squeaked a win out in a 18 percent higher turnout, which you think would favor him. He barely squeaked a win out over Pete Buttigieg, even though Amy Klobuchar was uh, a very strong threat taking votes from uh, Pete Buttigieg. Without Amy Klobuchar, he would have gotten beaten badly uh, in New Hampshire. Now, the fact is, if there are still three or four center-left candidates competing into the Super Tuesday states, he's going to start mounting up a delegate lead. And he may not be able to get to, you know, Democratic Party is not like the Republican Party. Uh, our mutual friend Mike Murphy likes to say the Republican Party is social Darwinist. It's winner-take-all. In the Democratic Party, we give out participation ribbons, you know. So if you get 15 percent, you get delegates. And for that reason, uh, it'd be hard for Sanders, I think, to get to a majority of delegates, but he could be a delegate leader if the center left is splintered. There are more center left votes than left votes, but if the center left continues to be splintered, if, if Biden and Buttigieg and, and Klobuchar all go into the uh, Super Tuesday states along with Michael Bloomberg, um, that could be a big day for Bernie Sanders. So uh, the process is working against him in terms of getting the, 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 the kind of uh, momentum that Trump got. But he still could become the delegate leader. And that poses a, a problem for the Democratic Party, because are you going to say to the delegate leader, even if he's not close to getting what he needs, you're not going to be the nominee. And if you do that, where do all those Sanders voters go? Trump is right. working this already. He keeps saying they're trying to rig it against Bernie. You know, all he has all this yeah. solicitude for Bernie. If Bernie becomes the candidate, you better believe he's going to try and kick his butt with this socialism and all of that. But right Right now, he's trying to plant the seed with Sanders voters that they're cheating Bernie. They're going to take it away from Bernie. There are a lot of problems ahead for the Democratic Party if that is the scenario. Well, and one of them will be will be Donald Trump, whoever the eventual nom nominee is. And, and another way I, I want to ask you to compare 2016 versus 2020 is this. Was Hillary 2016 a stronger or weaker candidate than Trump 2020? Uh, was Hillary 2016 a stronger, weaker camp? You know, uh, uh, that is, I think she was a weaker candidate only because uh, Trump is this. He is an authentic character. He does have uh, an incredibly strong hold on his base. Hillary had a fractured yeah. base. Uh -huh. And Trump has something else. He has something else, which is he is willing to do anything. There are no boundaries. There are no limits. And that creates a kind of asymmetric warfare. If you're mm -hmm. running against a candidate who's willing to do anything and you're not, and most Democrats won't be, uh, that gives him a perverse advantage uh, in an election campaign. Um, as you know, never Trumpers like me uh, ended up either being, you know, marginalized within the party or pushed out completely. Uh, should never Sanders people kind of prepare for a similar fate? Uh, no. Well, you, certainly the Sanders supporters can be brutal if you uh, if they feel like you are. Um, uh, you're straying from Bernie. Uh, the, the leaders of the Culinary Union in Nevada just learned that when they uh, when they took off after Bernie and, uh, you know, they, they, they were 
publishing the names of of the uh, or threatening to uh, pass around the home addresses of the labor leaders so that the Bernie yeah. people knew where they lived and so on. I mean, there is some of that. Bernie's d- disavowed that. But I think in the main, the, the, this is, uh, you know, Democrats should uh, make an assessment, uh, no matter who the nominee is, of that nominee versus the prospect of uh, four more years of President Trump. Uh, and it's hard for me to believe that a lot of that, that, that large numbers of Democrats would say, well, given that choice, I'm just not going to participate. I, I think that Trump may organize the Democrats better than the, or- the Democrats appear to be organizing themselves right now. Hmm. David Axelrod, my friend, always good to see you. Thanks for coming on. Great to see you, Essie. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, up next, a powerful Nevada union says it's found itself on the wrong side of the Bernie bros. Does that complicate things for the Vermont senator just a week before the first in the West caucus? And we're in the thick of it now, so make sure to tune in to the CNN original series, Race for the White House, which returns tomorrow night at 9 on CNN. Democrats this week were eagerly awaiting the coveted endorsement from Nevada's Culinary Union. It's one of the largest, most politically active unions in the nation, but it never came. The union announced it isn't endorsing a specific candidate ahead of next week's caucus. The non-endorsement came just days after the union criticized Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All plan. This drew the uniquely retaliatory ire of Sanders supporters, who apparently flooded the union's Twitter feed and phone lines to the point where The union released a statement saying it was being viciously attacked by Sanders fans. Sanders himself condemned the behavior on Thursday. Harassment of all forms is unacceptable to me, and we urge supporters of all campaigns not to engage in bullying or ugly personal attacks. Our campaign is building a multi-generational, multi-racial movement of love, compassion, and justice. We can certainly disagree on issues, but we must do it in a respectful manner. Now, when he was asked about the ordeal on PBS, Sanders echoed that message himself, but also questioned the nature of reality. Obviously, that is not acceptable to me, and I don't know who these so-called supporters are. Uh, you know, we're living in a strange world on the Internet, and sometimes people attack people in somebody else's name. But let me be very clear. Uh, anybody making personal attacks against anybody else in my name is not part of our movement. We don't want them. And I'm not so sure, to be honest with you, that they are necessarily part of our movement. You understand, you know, the nature of the Internet. It's a strange world out there. Doesn't even know if they really exist. Now, let me get this out of the way. A candidate can't always be held responsible for everything their supporters do or say. But Sanders supporters have been notorious for this kind of thing for five years now. So there's a legitimate question here about whether Sanders has done or said enough to curb this behavior. Joining me to discuss our assistant editor at The Washington Post, David Swerdlick, and Republican strategist, Shermichael Singleton. Uh, David, Sanders has condemned this stuff repeatedly, mm-hmm. but it keeps happening. Is <laughs> right. there anything else he should be doing to call off the attack dogs, or is it really out of his hands at this point? So, yeah, he in that clip you just played, he did disavow those supporters, but it has been, as you said, widely reported since 2016 yeah. that there are a lot of Sanders supporters, including and especially online, who have an edge to them. Yeah. And so for him to have portrayed it as like, I don't know who these people are. Right. Is, Putting is, them in is, quotes. <laughs> right. In quotes, no, like that's, a, that's, that's a notch too far. I mean, he, like you said, he doesn't control everyone's of course, behavior. Of course. And there are people who are going to support him who are not going to do what he wants. And that's not his well, fault. Well, and as you just
just but, said yeah. this stuff is happening primarily online. It's primarily on Twitter right. and Facebook. Um, it's anonymous. Yeah. Does Bernie raise a valid point that this could be Russian bots? This could be, uh, or even Trump supporters? It could be. I'll just say, though, that it happens to journalists. It happens. It has happened to me in a, in a less sure. threatening and lighthearted way. I was once called uh, a Hillary Clinton bootlicker for saying something on air yeah. sure, of that was critical of Senator Sanders. I was kind of like, wow, they care about the bootlickers. That's fine. Um, but but the, re the reality here is that uh, I think Senator Sanders can lean in a little more to making clear that he wants his movement to be a competition, yeah. not an attack on all comers. And, these guys, these and guys he are didn't real. do it in that interview. Trust me, they're yeah. real. Um, yeah. true. Sir Michael, we can't talk about whether candidates are responsible for the worst of their supporters without bringing yeah. up the elephant in the room, Donald Trump. Donald Trump, yeah. Unlike Sanders, um, Trump openly encourages bad behavior at his, he at his rallies. Um, he's, you know, praised a congressman who beat up a journalist. Mm -hmm. He promised to pay the legal fees of people who beat up, um, you know, opponents of his. Mm -hmm. He personally attacks people on Twitter. Uh, there's no comparison. Is Bernie therefore getting a bit of a pass because Trump is worse? I mean, I think so. I mean, but to me, he sort of had a Kellyanne Conway moment of he alternative who? truths. Uh, Bernie Sanders was oh. saying, oh, I don't know if some of those people were really my supporters. Right. Right. This isn't a new thing, Essie. We saw this in yeah. uh, uh, 2015 and 2016 yes. with some of Bernie Sanders' supporters. And I think if the whole like, argument... Get a better story. Right. But I think the argument if from Bernie is we're better than Trump, we're going to do things differently, then don't you think you should encourage some of your followers, including those online, mm. to behave in a way that you're arguing uh, is representative of your values, beliefs, and your candidacy. And he really isn't. By not saying anything aggressively strong by condemning it, yeah. from my perspective, he's sort of softly saying, oh, you know, if you do it, I'm not going to really say much about mm -hmm, it. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem. Well, David, to that point, yeah. um, the Daily Beast, Sam Stein, recently tweeted, uh, lots of people at Warren and Pete town halls I talked to were weighing a Sanders vote, but said they were turned off by the culture and the crowds. I mean, this could just be the perception of the culture in the crowds, but could that perception be a problem? The, the, the culture in the crowds of the Sanders supporters. Yes. Yeah, no, th there is an edge to them, and here's the thing. What benefits Senator Sanders is that his supporters are more enthusiastic about their candidates yes. than the supporters of the other candidates are about their candidates. Yes. That ha is one of the reasons he's leading this race right now, the enthusiasm, the, the numbers of small-dollar donors. The, the flip side of that coin is, is that anytime someone criticizes Senator Sanders or anytime someone says, hey, but I like this other candidate's plan, Buttigieg, Warren, Biden, someone's, you know, you do get but a he, flurry of criticism out there saying, but he's oh, like your establishment. He's yeah. Trump on the left. He, in, in many ways, he's oh, sort of well. moved by a populist-esque movement yeah. on the left. Well, listen, and I think as the, as the woman at the table, I also just want to point out there's a particular brand of Bernie bro criticism that women are getting, yeah. and it's gross. Okay, David, Tremichael, you guys are staying right there because I want your take on Nevada uh, as well. And a little later, there's a debate. Next week, voters may get their first real look at surging billionaire candidate Mike Bloomberg then. Will they like what they see? Early voting for next week's caucus in Nevada starts today, and the first in the West contest is also the first opportunity a majority-minority state will cast ballots. For Pete Buttigieg, 
Pete Buttigieg, he needs to show that he can appeal to more diverse and representative pool of Democratic voters than those that handed him strong finishes in Iowa and New Hampshire. Joe Biden also needs a strong performance period. Here's what he told CNN's Arlette Signs at an event in Las Vegas just this morning. How well do you need to do here in Nevada? I just have to do well. Do you think you need to win? You need to come in first place? No, I don't think I have to, but I think we have a shot at doing that. He also told donors at a New York City fundraiser this week that he's confident he'll win South Carolina two weeks from now. Okay, back, back with me is assistant editor at The Washington Post, David Swerdlick, and Republican strategist Shermichael Singleton. Also joining me is the former Nevada state director for Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign, Emmy Ruiz, who also served as a senior advisor to Kamala Harris's presidential campaign. So let me start with you, Emmy. Um, first, there are, I'm sure you know, no minority frontrunner candidates left in this Democratic primary. The top tier of candidates is now all white. How does that affect a Nevada primary? Thank you so much for having me. I, you know, I'm very painfully aware of that reality. I yeah. think uh, Nevada is an incredible state. It is the first contest of the first four uh, that is truly reflective of this country. It is 30% Latino, 10% African American, and has the fastest growing AAPI population in the nation. And so it's incredibly important that every single candidate work hard show their record, that they have a proven record of working uh, and fighting for these communities and these families. It also has a significant uh, union household uh, population in Nevada. Yeah. So I think it's the first it's going to be the first real test for any of these candidates to truly gauge how they can see in the rest, how they can perform in the rest of the country. And talk to me about the controversy with the Nevada Culinary Union. Um, Latinos make up more than half of the 60,000 members there. So who does the decision not to endorse uh, any candidate, who does that hurt the most? Well, you know, I think, um, let me start by saying the Culinary Union, Local 226, uh, is incredibly powerful and strong. And part of the reason that 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 is the case is one is they have more than 60,000 members as you've mentioned but two they have worked really hard to provide direct services benefits have fought tirelessly on behalf of their members and so I you know I would say that I'm sure they're going to do everything they can to also turn out their members and to create opportunities for those members but to for whom I mean I mean by not endorsing anyone right who are they turning their members out to you know I think that they're going to be you know making the case over the next few weeks. I saw that Vice President Biden uh, had an event with culinary members, was at the back of the house uh, just earlier today, and there was a lot of energy and excitement. Mm. He also got a big endorsement from Congressman Stephen Horsford, who used to work for the culinary, uh, is also the only African-American congressman in Nevada. And so it's really going to be incumbent mm. on all of the candidates to make sure that you know, they're going to the at-large caucus sites, that they're going to the training center, that they're knocking on those doors across Clark County and throughout Nevada where culinary members are found and taking the case directly to them. Um, David, Pete Buttigieg has upped his ground game in Nevada. He's begun airing Spanish yeah. language ads in the state. Do you think that could pay off for him? Maybe a little bit. I think what could pay off for him potentially more is that his position lines up with Culinary Workers 226, hmm. that he wants to give people, uh, you Choice. know, sort of a, a public yeah. option, not Medicare for all, and take away the uh, union-negotiated benefits. That was what right. this controversy with Wednesday's flyer was all about. But now you wonder if the union has taken away 
away a little of their juice by not, as you mm, said, yeah. not endorsing. Maybe they see the writing on the wall and think maybe Senator Sanders, it's too risky to go against him because he's got all the mo right now. Um, sure, Michael, you saw what Joe Biden just said about Nevada. Yeah. Um, does that inspire confidence for his, <laughs> for his finish there among I mean, his not, supporters? Not really, but I think as long as he gets at least second place okay. and gets first in South Carolina, I think he could He's make... He's alive. Absolutely. And yep. I think he can make an argument to donors that, hey, now this race is, is really open. Now it's competitive. Now I have a shot going into Super Tuesday for you guys yeah. to pump cash into my campaign. And that's been his argument all along. Right. And David, um, what about Elizabeth Warren? Could she make mm -hmm. a comeback here in Nevada? Um, anything's possible. I think there's so many things that are going on with her campaign. I'm not going to write her off until Super Tuesday, but I think her campaign is struggling to distinguish. In Nevada in particular. I mean, right. a number She's of, I think enough. half a dozen of her staffers right. of color left the Nevada yep. office yeah. because of the way they right. thought there they were being treated. there was a controversy. But I think the, the bigger problem for her, that, that is absolutely an issue in Nevada, yeah. is that she's not far enough to Sanders' right on health care for the Culinary Workers Union. She's mm. not far enough to the to the left of, or excuse me, to the right of Pete Buttigieg. Yeah. And so she's kind of caught in this no man's land. Yeah. And I think her campaign has not quite found the right way to come back from their downside starting in October. But I think this is the end of the road for a lot of these candidates. Yeah. Uh, Elizabeth Nevada Warren, is. absolutely. Uh -huh. Amy Klobuchar, they have not resonated mm. with, with minorities. I think Mayor mm. Pete arguably may do perform better than, than the two of them. But I think come South Carolina, I'm not exactly sure that those candidates will have enough money to be able to compete as well yeah, as they would like come Super yeah, Tuesday. Sure. I think they um, can go on to Super Tuesday, but it's going to be tougher. I think that'll be the end of the road. Emmy, uh, finally back to you. There are jitters in the Democratic Party after the last caucus. You know the one I'm talking about. Um, what are you hearing about the Nevada caucus, about how this one will go? Yeah, well, let me tell, let me start by telling you, the Nevada Democratic Party and the DNC have a strong partnership. The Nevada Democratic Party is known for being the strongest in the nation. Uh, they have put in some new reforms that are actually making the caucus process more accessible and more transparent. Today, as you mentioned will earlier, it just work? the first day will of it early just voting. Work? <laughs> it will work. I have faith that it will work. They have trained uh, thousands of volunteers. They have an incredibly strong team. Everyone is working together to ensure that it is a success. Yeah. Uh, and honestly, it's on all of us to make sure that, that that's the case. And so I hope that if people haven't voted, go out and vote in Nevada. If you haven't volunteered yet, go out and volunteer because it's going to be on all of us. Emmy, David, Shermichael, thank you all for joining me. It'll be an important next contest we'll all be watching. Thanks, okay, Bloomberg had, well, he had a big week, the good, the bad, and the ugly when we return. In the red file tonight, Michael Bloomberg's had quite a week. CNN's most recent poll of polls has him sitting in fourth place with 8% support. And after the DNC changed a rule to accommodate his self-funded campaign, he's on the cusp of making the debate in Las Vegas next week. He needs just one more qualifying poll to appear on the stage. Not surprisingly, there's been increased scrutiny of the former mayor. First, there's his support and expansion of New York's stop-and-frisk policy during his time as mayor, which disproportionately targeted minorities. He is again on defense after these comments he made in 2015 resurfaced. You put all the cops in the minority neighborhoods. Yes, that's true. Why do we do it? Because that's where all the crime is. 
And the way you get the guns out of the kids' hands is uh, to throw them against the wall and, and frisk them. Also coming back to haunt him are comments he made about the housing crisis in 2008, saying it all probably started when there was a lot of pressure on banks to make loans to everyone. Bloomberg bemoaned ending the practice of redlining in which banks discriminated against poor and minority neighborhoods. Finally, there are the less than flattering headlines appearing in GQ and The Washington Post outlining the sexual harassment lawsuits Bloomberg and or his companies have faced allegations he's denied. But during a January appearance on The View, he did admit to making an occasional, quote, body joke in the past, which he regrets. Now, that may be baggage, but there are also Bloomberg's bags, bags of money. Can he buy his way into Democrats' hearts and minds? With me now is veteran political anchor with Spectrum News and CNN political commentator, Errol Lewis. Um, Errol, my friend, you cover the city of New York. You and I write for New York media outlets. We know Bloomberg very well. But the rest of the country is kind of just getting to know him better now. How was this week for him? This was um, a, not a great week for him. And I guess you could summarize it, Essie, as Welcome to the top ranks. Welcome to the right. front runners club. Uh, the way you know you're a front runner or considered uh, to be a front runner in the Democratic primary is you start feeling darts in your back and kicks in your butt. And he got mm. uh, plenty of both, meaning he's getting serious scrutiny now. He's getting an evaluation of his record as mayor, uh, his time as a public leader of a kind that he's never received before. And it's coming from people who have the resources and the credibility to make some of those charges stick. So do you think he can move some of these, move past some of these problems um, with Democratic voters who, you know, care about things like race and criminal justice and class warfare and equality in the workplace? Can he can he move past all that with the voting base that, you know, for whom that really matters? Well, look, that that is the question. And I think it's, it's going to be a matter of uh, the ex-mayor not only answering questions, and that's really what campaigns are about. You know, you encounter a setback, you encounter a test, you encounter a challenge. How you meet it really, really matters. I think what he will likely do is try and broader, broaden people's perception of what his 12 years as mayor really meant. He's got uh, a record to run on. He's got a record that is, 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 is not simply stop and frisk. You know, so for example, he'll talk about education and about school choice and about the initiatives that he championed as mayor. And they account for the reason that he's got respected educators like Jeffrey Canada and Dennis right. Walcott, who, who are very much in his corner. Because as you remember, he, he first got mayoral control of the schools for the first time in a couple of generations. That in itself was uh, uh, an important uh, change. And, you know, he, he led school choice. He was pro-charter. Most students, most charter students in New York City to this day happen to be African-American. Right. And you're talking about tens of thousands of families who kind of like what he did in supporting charters yep. and supporting school choice. So um, if, if he can get people to um, look at his entire record, he'll have a much more solid case. If he if he lets well, himself get cornered on that debate stage into simply defending stop and frisk, he's going to have mm -hmm. a very hard time. Well, and I think he tried to move past one of the issues again today. Um, he tweeted just earlier, I would not be where I am today without the talented women around me. I've depended on their leadership, their advice and their contributions. As I've demonstrated throughout my career, I will always be a champion for women in the workplace. 
I know what he's referring to. You know what he was referring to there. Uh, will that be enough? Well, listen, most of what was talked about, about his sexist comments, his inexcusably sexist comments in the workplace, um, predate his time uh, as mayor, meaning they are prior to 2001 when he was elected and 2002 when he was sworn in. If you want to go back 20 years and say, this defines you, this is what we're going to choose our next president based on, I don't think that's what voters are really looking for. So he's got a case to make. You know, he did a, an event, Women for Bloomberg. He got three or four hundred women in some ballroom, uh, including a, a number of noted um, uh, feminists with impeccable predi- uh, political credentials who are saying, we like the guy. We like what he's done. We think that he can move forward and that this is not indicative of how he hmm. would lead if he's elected president. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see about that. Um, He and Trump have traded jabs this week about everything from how tall they both are to how much money they have. Um, Democrats seem to rejoice in Bloomberg's barbs. But is that going to be real currency? I, I don't think so, to be honest with you. I mean, yeah. you know, you, you, um, you, as you said at the top of the show, you and other sort of never Trumpers um, from the Republican side warned everybody years ago, you don't want to get into a fight with this guy at, at that level. Um, he excels in it. It's, uh, it cheapens the, in the entire dialogue. And if the case to be made against the president is that uh, the frivolity, the obscenity, uh, the childish nicknames, all, that, all of that is, is something that's unworthy of, of the presidency. I don't think you make that point by acting that way. On the other hand, there's a fine line there. You don't necessarily e- uh, want to be bullied either. Mike Bloomberg hits back, and he kind of hits him where it hurts. You know, he makes these comments about how I know all the rich people in New York, Donald Trump, and they're all laughing at you behind your mm. back. You know, it, it's, it's very cutting. It's very personal. It's very unfortunate. If Donald Trump doesn't like it, he's got nobody to blame except the guy in the mirror. He brought us to this point, and it's a shame that that's what politics is turning into. Errol Lewis, thanks so much, my friend. Appreciate you. Thank you. Okay, one of the places Bloomberg is spending some of his billions is on Facebook, where the president's campaign has created an alternate reality designed to mislead you. I'll tell you what you should know after the break. As you know, President Trump loves disinformation. He and his campaign frequently use misleading, heavily edited or completely doctored videos and pictures to agitate his base, especially on social media. In the past few weeks alone, there were 200 misleading Facebook ads about how the, quote, fake news media would try to block the president's Super Bowl ad. He's run ads full of Joe Biden conspiracy theories. And the president himself shared a clip of Speaker Nancy Pelosi ripping up the State of the Union speech, edited in a way that was, yes, misleading. Twitter and Facebook refused to take it down. It's getting harder and harder to tell what's real from fake. And when it comes from the president or even his campaign, people are inclined to believe it. Here to discuss a staff writer at The Atlantic, McKay Coppins, who wrote the piece, The Billion Dollar Disinformation Campaign to Reelect the President. Uh, McKay, you got a firsthand look at the disinformation campaign deployed to reelect Trump. What were you most alarmed by? Yeah, so while I was reporting this story, I kind of engaged in a little exercise. Last fall, I created a Facebook account that was separate from the one that I normally used and subscribed to various conservative pages, pro-Trump pages, the president's campaign, uh, his own page, uh, various fan pages like that. And then throughout the impeachment proceedings, I kind of watched and followed along as the campaign and the president's other partisan allies were pumping out content 
at a pretty alarming rate, frankly, uh, that that was kind of designed to take out of context what was happening day to day in the impeachment proceedings and recast it almost to make it look like the exact opposite had happened. Mm. So there were days when I would watch the impeachment hearings live on TV, come to my own conclusions about the evidence that had been presented, and then look at these Facebook ads and I would find a video, for example, that took clips out of context, sewed them together in a creative way, and I would think that I may have actually misunderstood what happened in the hearing. Sure. I came to doubt my my own two eyes, which I think right. was probably the most alarming. Well, look, we as journalists have to be super aware of these techniques, and even we can be susceptible to them, mm -hmm. as you say. Um, and I know just how susceptible people are to them, because after, you know, a day of impeachment, I would talk to someone and they'd hear or ha have heard or seen a completely different yep. thing. I mean, how can we expect voters to find out what's real and what's fake when some of this is really, really convincing? It's not only convincing, it's running in tandem with a strategy to undermine the press. I mean, by now, your viewers know about this, but there are all kinds of efforts, some very deliberate, some more underhanded, to weaken the institution of the press. And when you have the, this volume of content that's being put out to mislead and distort what's happening, combined with the fact that there was a CBS poll last year that said only 9%, actually, I think it was 11% of strong Trump supporters uh, believe the mainstream media, while 91% yeah. turned to the president himself for, for uh, credible information. When you have a dynamic like that, it's almost impossible for the president to actually be held accountable uh, by reporters or accountability journalism because his base just won't believe it. Well, and look, I don't want websites like Twitter and Facebook to become political thought police. I think that's really dangerous, mm -hmm. too. So um, at the same time, it can't be a good thing. Uh, that there's so much content out there that's pure agitprop. So right. how, do we, how do we find the line? Well, there's a lot of scholarship around this, a lot of debate. There are regulatory options that are on the table that would basically, you know, there, there's a, the Communications Decency Act, for example, shields these platforms from liability for what's posted on their platforms. And I think that, for the most part, that's a good thing. I think they shouldn't be held liable. But I do think right. that they, they should be expected to at least do some basic monitoring to keep disinformation and, you know, extremely toxic or abusive uh, content off their platforms. And they've done a little bit, but probably not enough. Yeah, I mean, and then it gets to the question of who decides what's yep. toxic, who decides what's misleading. I mean, that's tough, too. Um, quickly before we go, does this, do you think, encourage other candidates, including Democrats running in this election cycle, to do the same things? This is an open debate among Democratic strategists I talked to. A lot of them believe that to win in 2020, they're going to have to co-opt some of the president's tactics. I, I won't weigh in on that, but I do think that if that happens, the entire information ecosystem that we have now is going to be basically unusable. And, and I worry about wow. the long-term consequences of that. Uh, McKay Coppins, thanks so much for that piece, and thanks for coming on to talk about it. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, the election year has just begun, and it's going to be a bitter campaign, so prepare yourself by looking back at some of the most hard-fought presidential races in history on Race for the White House. The CNN original series returns tomorrow night at 9. Ana Cabrera is back with CNN Newsroom. That's next. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. 
And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.